The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 26 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their website, www.cshub.com. So the Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks, kind of like what we do, what we talk about on this show, right? So the media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, if you want to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I, I hope everyone had a nice holiday weekend. I mean, Saturday was just beautiful here in New York City. I woke up this morning, though, and it's snowing like crazy here. So... I mean, I just, I just can't wait until we're all done with this. I mean, it's April, right? It's April. I mean, for the love of God, please, enough with the snow. I can't take it. I mean, I just can't wait for summer to get here. I mean, I know we don't even have spring anymore. It just goes right. So I feel like we just go right from winter to summer, whatever. I'll take it, okay? I, I just can't take the snow anymore. All right? I mean, I'm ready. So lots of great feedback on last week's show. I mean, Peter did a great job. Uh, he spurred a lot of good conversation on what a moonshot would look like in cybersecurity. So I think a lot of people are talking about his book, which is cool. Um, you know, some people have some questions about some of the ideas there, and some people thought, you know, that we should run with some of the ideas there. And I, I've seen some discussion on social media about about the book, so which is fantastic, and that's what we need. We need a conversation. We need a dialogue to sort of fix this problem. So, um, you know, another thing, too, it was interesting to hear from a CISO from the media and entertainment industry. I mean, they have different problems than a lot of the people that we've had on the show. And so it's just very interesting to hear what kind of problems they have and how they deal with it and the strategies that they use. So I think we can learn a lot from each other. And that's another, uh, you know, that's another thing that this show's about. So good stuff. So please send any feedback or requests that you have for future topics on the show to my Task Force 7 Radio email address at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. Sometimes it takes me a while to get to it, but I do get to it, folks. I promise I read every email that's sent to me. So Peter uh, was interesting. He's got some unique ideas that I think gener- generated some really good dialogue. Uh, so if you missed it, urge you to find your favorite playback medium. Find Task Force 7 Radio. Subscribe to the show. It's always important that you subscribe, folks. And, and look for the latest ep- episode. That's episode number 25 named The Cyber Conundrum, How Do We Fix Cybersecurity? And Peter Cronus appears on the second and third segments of the show. Great show. Don't miss it. 
So you can now find TF7 Radio on your favorite podcast site or on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's own website, of course, TaskForce7Radio.com, and then there's the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. Our presence is really growing. We're out there. We're everywhere. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please don't forget to subscribe. And I know a lot of you out there are social media junkies, so don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. So especially check us out on Twitter. We're getting a lot of good stuff out there on Twitter. You'll see a lot of information about our guests, our sponsors, some future topics, and even guest hosts of the show. It's all good stuff. All good stuff on Twitter. Check us out. So today we're going to have the CEO of Kenna Security, Kareem Tuba, on the show tonight. So Kareem is a longtime cybersecurity executive. He spent about 20 years in the security product world. He launched the first PKI as a service in late 1999, and he's been building security products ever since. He's a, he's a true cybersecurity professional. So at Ingrian Networks, he pioneered a scalable encryption appliance used by some of the most leading enterprise and government organizations before it was acquired by SafeNet. So before joining Kenna Security, he spent about five years at Juniper Networks, leading the product team for Juniper's billion-dollar security business. Kareem is a self-described product junkie. He gets frustrated with poorly built products and loves to spend his time thinking about making products seamless. So he joined Kenna Security in 2014 as the CEO of the company, and ever since, the company's been on a real tear. Uh, I mean, you know, today, Kenna has over 300 customers worldwide, including many of the Fortune 500 companies. Kenna Security uses machine learning in the cloud to map their customers' overall attack surface. They align it through the lens of risk, and they help drive prioritized remediation. So what's really exciting is they recently announced a first in security, the ability to predict weaponized exploits. And in addition to that, they also just announced a $25 million Series C led by Bessemer Ventures. So a lot going over there, on over there at the uh, Kenna Security. I mean, they, uh, they certainly have been hitting the news lately. Congratulations to Kareem on, on closing that $25 million C round. Nicely done. Nicely done there. And, and so Kareem Tuba coming up on the second and third segments of the show. It's going to be good. Don't go away. So... Before we get to all that, so someone launched a ransomware attack against the city of Atlanta. And this comes as the city of Atlanta tweeted out last Thursday. I mean, I think it was two weeks from Thursday, uh, about 10 days ago, actually, that maybe 11 now, that, quote, the city of Atlanta is currently experiencing outages on various customer-facing applications, including some of that customers may use to pay bills or access court-related information. We will post any updates as we receive them. So a lot's happened since that tweet came out. The most recent update posted yesterday on gizmodo.com by writer Tom McKay. He reports that city officials in Atlanta, Georgia, are still trying to recover 10 days later after a ransom t- attack 
on a municipal computer system hit at least five out of the 13 departments for the city of Atlanta, knocking out some of the city's services and forcing others to revert back to paper records. So, now, per Reuters, right, over, over a week has passed since the SamSam ransomware began spreading throughout the, system, uh, the city computer systems. Uh, and, the, and the bad guys, they demanded a $51,000 ransom payment, but it's still gone unpaid by the city. And so we've talked about this a few times on the show before. So while the recovery began last week, large stretches of computer systems remain encrypted by the attackers. Three city council members were sharing a single old laptop over the weekend as they tried to reconstruct records, with Councilman Howard Shook telling news agencies that the situation was, quote-unquote, extraordinarily frustrating. Now, I could imagine, so they're kind of painting the picture of what has happened to the city of Atlanta there. So, according to the Reuters report, numerous local officials have found their file systems corrupted with tags like, we apologize, and I'm sorry, appended to document titles. Though the ransomware was not able to corrupt, corrupt everything, it was just 8 out of the 18 computers in the auditor's offices that were affected, it is believed that much of the information that was affected, of course, may be unrecoverable. Now, everybody who's, or anybody who's familiar with ransomware knows how this works. A lot of times this information is unrecoverable unless you pay the ransom and get the, the keys to encrypt the data. So one of the, the city's auditors, Amanda Noble, said in her office, the other day, that everything on my hard drive is gone. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a total nightmare. I mean, city officials are mostly hush-hush on this whole thing. There's not a lot, a lot that they're saying. You have a lot of one-off comments from some of the folks down there. And they have not disclosed the extent to which the servers for backing up information on PCs were corrupted or what kind of information they think is recoverable or unrecoverable without actually paying the ransom. So get this. The Atlanta police returned to taking written case notes and they've lost access to some investigative databases. This according to what department spokesman Carlos Campos told Reuters. So he declined to discuss the contents of the files that were affected by the attack. But I can only imagine how much that has slowed the police department down in terms of their productivity. Taking handwritten notes, the cops there must be losing their minds. I was a cop for eight years, and one of the things that I know cops hate the most is the paperwork that comes with the job. That's not the fun part of the job at all. You know, people don't realize how much paperwork cops do on a weekly basis. I mean, it, 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 and they don't realize how much technology has helped reduce and streamline that whole administrative nightmare that's part of the job for thousands of police officers across the country. So understand, folks, I mean, you go to one domestic violence call, and you're doing paperwork for a week, all right? It's a nightmare. All right. So beyond the, the paperwork on current calls into the immediate future, I mean, God only knows how that's affected the department's ability to, to prosecute criminals charged with crimes, but who have not yet gone to court because there's not yet a disposition on their case. So, I mean, look at that. I mean, violent criminals could be released back onto the streets. Think about this for a second, folks. I mean, dangerous criminals could be released back onto the streets to potentially further victimize others and possibly commit future crimes that would have otherwise been prevented had the city's computer network been secured properly and the ransomware attack not successful. So, now this is just speculation on my part. I want to be clear about that. I, I have no idea what kind of files, the investigative files, have been lost. 
Um, but surely, if you think about the most serious crimes, I mean, weapons violations, assault, carjacking, rapes, even murders. I mean, who knows? I mean, you could you know, let your imagination go wild, right? Because they're not talking, not really telling us. But if these are the types of cases that can't be accessed, the public safety could clearly be at stake because of the department's inability to disposition and prosecute these cases that have these potentially very dangerous criminals. So this is certainly a topic for discussion because, as we mentioned before on this show in the past, the FBI has advised companies against paying ransom to the bad guys as a result of a ransomware attack. So according to Wired magazine, in this case, the Sam Sam ransomware is a particularly advanced piece of malware. And it infiltrates a computer network by exploiting vulnerabilities or guessing weak passwords in a target's public-facing systems. And then uses techniques like the, the Mimikatz password recovery tool to seize control of the rest of the network. So that means attackers don't need to launch social engineering attacks or trick users into running malware for it to spread on your network. And SamSam can easily spread via remote desktop protocols, Java-based web servers, file transfer protocol servers, and other public network components. So think about it. Some of the security measures planned to be implemented by the city of Atlanta, well, according to CBS News, just too little too late, right? The city was just about to begin to implement some of the the recommendations of a cybersecurity audit that was released in January that found that, quote, the large number of severe and critical vulnerabilities identified has existed for so long the organizations responsible have essentially become complacent and no longer take action. The audit said that departments tasked with dealing with the thousands of vulnerabilities do not have enough time or tools to properly analyze and treat the systems, leading to a quote-unquote significant level of preventable risk exposure to the city. And I would argue in this case, as I mentioned before, it's a very, very serious uh, uh, exposure as these vulnerabilities possibly directly affect the public safety of the citizens of Atlanta. So Dave Cronister, the founder of uh, Parameter Security, is criticizing the city of Atlanta in a Wired Magazine article saying that, quote, even a sophisticated version like this, meaning the the Sam Sam ransomware he's referring to, has to rely on automation to work. Ransomware relies on someone, meaning the target, not implementing basic security tenets. So he said not to be too harsh. But looking at this, their security strategy must be pretty bad, meaning the, the city of Atlantis in this case. So on the investigative side, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security are assisting Atlanta officials, but it's not clear, or at least it has not been made public at this time, what advice they're actually giving to the city of Atlanta for this specific case, because this attack clearly could affect the public safety in a way that may be different to some of the ransomware attacks that we've, been, that we've seen against other organizations. So this, as Reuters also noted, that the FBI, quote-unquote, typically discourages ransomware victims from paying up, as we've mentioned. However, former First Deputy Undersecretary of Cybersecurity at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Mark Weatherford, also commented that paying the ransom may be one of the very few options Atlanta has left to resolve this issue. So it seems that ransomware attacks are rapidly expanding, and one of the reasons the FBI discourages paying up is that it might encourage attackers to hit vulnerable systems even more. Obviously, if they're getting paid, it's working, and they're going to keep doing it. In just some statistics, according to NPR, the FBI received 2,673 reports of ransomware attacks in 2016, 
in over 3,000 ransomware attacks last year alone. So we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, I want to remind our audience that later on this year, we're going to launch the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. We're going to create a massive cybersecurity task force that spans across all seven continents, and that's going to be the premier collaborative platform that cybersecurity professionals are starving for. So no more is it only going to be the criminals that are collaborating, including to win the cyber war out there. It's time to get in the fight, folks. We're finally going to have a technology platform that brings our collective skills, our collective knowledge, and our collective resources together to win the battle that we're fighting every day. So let me tell you, it, it takes a network to beat a network. It takes a network to beat a network, folks. There's, there's no one can win this battle alone. You're going to want to be a part of this professional vertical network that will include the top cybersecurity professionals in the world. Task Force 7 is going to be the real deal. We're going to solve some problems, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes with some words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with our special guest, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Kenna Security, Kareem Tuba. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you tapped your full potential as a leader? Sometimes you have to go a little deeper and connect with your inner force. Join host Angela King as she invites you to discover something that already lies within you and helps you become a better leader. Your most important connection is the one you have with yourself. It's time to connect, ignite, and rise. It's time for Inner Force. Tune in live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the CEO of Kenna Security, Kareem Tuba. So, Kareem, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, George. Hey, and we're glad you're here. So, look, there's a lot of attacks that we hear about in the news all the time. And most of the high-profile attacks that we hear about have been a direct cause of vulnerabilities. You have Spectra, Meltdown, Petya, WannaCry, can go on and on. Is it just me? But in 2018, should we really be seeing this many high-profile breaches with the root cause coming back to unpatched systems? What's going on here, in your opinion? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it is surprising because it's 2018. And as you said, we're seeing things that have been oftentimes around for a long time being exploited uh, by attackers. And what's really going on here is a couple of things. First of all, it's a signal to noise problem. The average enterprise today that leverages us has about anywhere between 18 to 24 million vulnerabilities open at any given time across their entire infrastructure. So consider if I'm somebody that's trying to understand what the impact is of something as specific as Petya or specific as WannaCry and the six SMB vulnerabilities, I got to figure out extremely quickly how to filter through millions and millions and millions of existing vulnerabilities to get to the ones that matter. And that's the biggest fundamental issues that organizations are dealing with today. How do you figure out what's important and then how do you prioritize? The second issue that's becoming very evident to us is that with the all of the advent, look, there's a ton written out there about the adoption of cloud, about the adjunct of IoT, about how quickly business applications are being developed and how much pressure there is on businesses to develop new applications. All of those things are creating an environment that's extremely dynamic and fluid inside of all these organizations and governments. And what does that mean? It means it opens up the door for new exploits and new vulnerabilities that are coming online. So the combination of those two things are causing an age-old problem to rear its ugly head and then giving attackers an opportunity to really exploit that problem. So, so, the, so the Equifax breach was one of the most talked about breaches ever when it happened, and it's going to be for a while. And it too was the result of the exploitation of unpatched vulnerabilities, as we know. So if I was a company that heard about the breach, what should I have done to address this in advance of, of getting, the, you know, the, uh, the, making sure we didn't get attacked ourselves in the same manner? Yeah, yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. There has been a ton written about the Equifax breach, and so let's dive into that a little bit. So what was the Equifax breach? It was an Apache Struts vulnerability, specifically Struts, which is an Apache framework that's used within the web server environment. And so if you're a company and you heard about that attack and you heard about that vulnerability by picking up the Wall Street Journal or turning on Bloomberg or really looking at any security feeds, the first thing you would have to assess is, What's the impact of struts and where is struts running into your, in your environment across the board? So that means having as close to real-time information to really understand where you're running Apache servers. And for those Apache servers that are running, which ones are running Apache struts and specifically which versions of Apache struts is running. Now, the reality, though, is it gets even more complex for organizations to react to. Once you found that out, you'd have to really understand the disposition of those systems. What's the criticality of the web server? What kind of information is it holding? Is it holding confidential information? Is there uh, information on that system that has a high, high degree of confidentiality that you're worried about being exfiltrated? And then furthermore, before you did the remediation, and in this particular case, if memory serves me correctly, you had to upgrade to a version of 2.3 or higher on the Apache Struts framework. That means that you didn't just touch IT ops, you really touched your DevOps team. And in some cases, you had to make sure to work with your development team that was using the frameworks to write the latest application. And that in and of itself, sort of walking through that life cycle of remediation, gives you a sense of some of the challenges organizations face 
around understanding the exposure of vulnerabilities and then trying to figure out not just what the prioritization is, but also what the remediation path is, which ironically enough is often found by security as an underlying problem, but is reliant upon IT operations, dev operations, and in some cases, the application developer to really help them reduce that risk and ultimately increase that efficacy and remediate that problem. So it's really multifaceted. So, so you guys at Canada Security are squarely in the space of helping companies deal with the issues of mitigating vulnerabilities as they're discovered. So what do you see companies doing today to, to manage this problem? And in your estimation, how effective have they been? How effective are their tactics? Yeah, it's a great question. So we see, a lot, we're, first of all, we're fortunate enough to have some very uh, significant Fortune 500 companies leveraging Kenna. And, and as part of that sort of journey in that partnership with them, we see a myriad of capabilities that organizations have when we come in. Um, and the spectrum varies widely. There, there are organizations today that manage all of their vulnerabilities that they have uh, inside of uh, Excel spreadsheets. That's probably, I would say, one of the most of arcane ways of doing it, but you'd be surprised how sophisticated a spreadsheet can be when macros are enabled so that different organizations can pivot on that spreadsheet and manage that vulnerability accordingly. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we have people that have invested in building out an entire application library along with a database where all the vulnerabilities or the scan results of those vulnerabilities are incorporated inside of that database so that they can do searches and queries on them so that they can potentially enrich that data and so that they can give different users access to that information, whether it be IT operations, whether it be DevOps, but also executives who oftentimes get pressure from boards, back to the Equifax example of a big vulnerability pops and executives want to understand the exposure to that because they want to report all the way up to the board at that level very quickly. So it really does vary. In terms of effectiveness, I would say that the effectiveness really varies based on the commitment of making this a cross-organizational discipline. One of the most interesting things that we found is that really addressing this problem is not just a security problem. It's really a team sport, if you will. Back to the problem we talked about earlier, it's really about trying to identify what different groups and constituents need to come along the ride in order to drive the path for remediation once the prioritization is completely done. That's a really good point. I mean, I've run into people that would say any organizational model can work, right? Any organizational model. I mean, you can skin a cat a hundred different ways, and I believe that. But I also believe that there's an optimal model when you think about cybersecurity teams. And if you run it like a business, I think there's always an optimal model to achieve these things. So, but in general, as an industry, as, a, as, as an industry, we, we are, the tactics are working or not in general? Yes or you no? Know, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's getting there. I think it's getting there. I think like everything else, it's an evolution, right? Not a revolution. I think there are people that are finally, and I think a lot of these high-profile vulnerabilities that you alluded to earlier, WannaCry and Fetcha, and uh, we haven't even talked about Spectre and Meltdown yet, all of those things are sort of raising the issue of how prevalent vulnerabilities have become, largely because of the volume, as an entry point for attackers. And remember something that's super interesting here is that vulnerabilities are not, avail are not only exploited in isolation, meaning that if I'm an attacker and I want to go in and exploit a vulnerability and I, I, I write an attack, they're also exploited inside of toolkits. 
when they're automated and weaponized. They're also exploited as part of kill chains inside of malware. So they're very multifaceted and they can be exploited in multidimensional ways, which makes it even more pressing. And I think people are waking up, recognizing that and really starting to take a look at a much more proactive and comprehensive way of trying to understand, manage, and ultimately drive remediation. So it sounds to me like we got mixed results around the industry, depending on the organizational structure and the maturity of the models that people are using. So in order to improve, how should we be thinking about the problem? Yeah, it's a great question, right? I mean, there's the, you know, at the risk of boiling the ocean, I tend <laughs> to think of things a little bit more practically. And the truth of the matter is that if you go back and look at the broader construct of what's actually going on within the space, the majority of the ways that organizations that are being successful are doing this is that they're looking at it and galvanizing around it through the lens of risk. So risk is a fundamental constraint of understanding it. And it goes back to going to, to the Equifax example because it's not just the vulnerability itself. So step back and think about the problem. I have a vulnerability and I find out about that vulnerability, but the first thing I have to do is I have to begin to understand, okay, what does that vulnerability mean to me as an organization? And what is the vulnerability relative to its importance to the business and the asset that it sits on? And if you're gonna to start to begin to understand the impact of a vulnerability, you have to begin to understand the impact of a vulnerability on an asset and the impact of the data that sits on that asset. And to have a comprehensive framework that does this, you have to do it through the lens of risk. And why is risk important? Because it's a common numerical framework that allows you to, A, baseline where an organization is, start to understand how you're progressing over time, but also rally multiple aspects and functional groups of the organization around a common lexicon that you can then use to really help drive remediation and measure that remediation over time. Do you think this... Uh this business model, the success that you're talking about, and I guess the varied success that you mentioned a few minutes ago, has anything to do with the risk and value approach that you just discussed, as opposed to some companies that use a regulatory checkbox to manage their cybersecurity programs? Listen, uh, I, <laughs> I've, been in, I've been lucky enough to be in security as you have for a very long time. And, uh, you know, while compliance, while compliance and regulatory certainly drive budgetary spend, I think, I think many of us are beginning to really understand and have so for a few years now that if you don't understand how to drive down risk and increase efficacy through and tied to business value, you're ultimately only going to be checking a, checking a checkbox. And that becomes dangerous. It gets the regulators off your back, but it really doesn't do a lot in terms of moving the needle on efficacy and really reducing risk. And that's the fundamental construct within, which I think most organizations from, secure, from a security perspective are really starting to think through, which is, look, it's great that we're compliant against SOX and HIPAA and PCI and the latest, risk, uh, the latest compliance mandate to jour, like GDPR. But the fundamental question everybody's beginning to ask consistently is, how can I leverage that and extend it in a way that drives the value I want and really addresses the risk. So when we're thinking about this risk and value mindset versus sort of a regulatory checkbox culture, right? How do we apply like the tactical and strategic risk strategies that, that companies 
want to utilize to mitigate vulnerabilities? And how can an organization leverage risk broadly across their enterprise? Yeah, so it first starts by having a common construct of risk, right? Everybody, if, if you go out there, whether you got look at NIST-based standards or whether you go out and look at third-party developed standards by consultants or the big four, the baseline is what's needed from a risk perspective. So first, the organization has to rally around and agree around a common lexicon and measurement of risk. Once that's done, what we're seeing from an operational perspective is every single organization has to rally around that. And it has to be bubbled up all the way to an executive perspective and ultimately even the board. It's funny, I was having a conversation uh, with a customer of ours uh, who was a CISO the other day and he told me, look, Kareem, if I'm gonna become relevant in 2018 and have a seat at the board and be taken seriously, I have to speak in a common lexicon that the board understands. And when it comes down to things like Wanna crime, Petya and, 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 and Spectre and others, I can't come in talking about bits and bytes. I have to understand that I have to come in and talk around the common lexicon that's understandable, which is around the common lexicon of risk. And if I can do that and plummet all the way through down to every piece of the oper operational organization, I can achieve two things. A, I can achieve a common language that the organization is rallying around but the underlying data that's driving the risk numerical calculation is the same data that the operators are using on an organizational perspective to drive, drive remediation, which means then I'm just not reporting a one-time static score up to the board and to my peer executives, but I'm using that same score to drive the right behavior so that I can measure the progress over time across security, across IT ops, DevOps, and even the application developers. So it really becomes sort of this common rallying cry, and I think we're seeing a lot of momentum around that now in the industry. So Kareem, we're going to take a short break, but I want to continue our discussion when we get back. There's lots more to talk about. So, you got it. Good, good. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from the CEO of Kenna Security, Kareem Tuba, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you tapped your full potential as a leader? Sometimes you have to go a little deeper and connect with your inner force. Join host Angela King as she invites you to discover something that already lies within you and helps you become a better leader. Your most important connection is the one you have with yourself. It's time to connect, ignite, and rise. It's time for Inner Force. Tune in live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, the CEO of Kenna Security, Kareem Tuba. So, Kareem, in the last segment, we talked about addressing vulnerabilities and the need to prioritize your cybersecurity efforts. And how should companies be thinking about prioritization? I mean, what data sources should help them prioritize not only their threats, but their risk mitigation and management efforts? Yeah, so prioritization is key, as we talked about earlier. And when you think about vulnerabilities and you ask yourself the fundamental question, and it's one question only, what are attackers doing to exploit the vulnerabilities that I have? Back to that example of we said the average enterprise has 18 to 24 million vulnerabilities open at one at any given time. What that means is it's not about looking at PCAP data or NetFlow or logs and events inside of your network. It's about looking at data sources outside of your network and what attackers are doing and how they're doing it. So what does that mean? It means to look at what attacker tools are available, what, what tools attackers are actually using to exploit vulnerabilities, which vulnerabilities are being weaponized. And by weaponization, what we mean is I have to write a vulnerability, I have to write some code to actually attack a specific vulnerability versus going back and automating it inside of an exploit kit like, let's say, Metasploit. The other thing you have to do is look at what the volume and velocity of exploits are being popped in the wild. And then even beyond that, as I think we spoke about earlier, more often than not, many of the vulnerabilities are actually exploited as part of malware kill chains. So it's really about understanding, okay, so which of all the malware that's out there that's currently uh, uh, being leveraged by attackers, which one? actually has vulnerabilities that are being exploited inside of it as part of that path? And what's the prevalence of that malware in the wild? And so understanding all of those data streams, which are typically billions to billions of pieces of data, becomes a pretty significant effort. Look, one thing that's clear, George, is we're way past human intelligence here, right? This is about the confluence and the convergence of big data and security, looking at all these external data points, mapping them to your vulnerabilities, requires compute and algorithms at an insane scale to really be able to help you prioritize when we're dealing with this amount of data. So, I mean, I, you know, just to follow up on that, how, in your mind, how good are companies in combining the external and internal intelligence that they get to get this, this output, this desired output that they're looking for? So they're awesome at the internal, right? I mean, every major enterprise that we go to has probably a SIM deployment. They have a bunch of agents running on endpoints. Yep. They have a bunch of information from logs and events, a bunch of network, uh, uh, NetFlow and PCAP data aggregated, correlation engines, some machine learning technology, where they're really struggling right now 
is how to map that outside data of what attackers are doing. And they're struggling with it because it's, it's new. It's sort of emerging, right? I mean, the first thing that you do, and like everything else in security, it's an evolution, right? And, so the, and it's a layer. And the first thing that you do is you, look, you tend to look inside of your perimeter, even though the perimeter is right. largely gone, inside of the things that you own, from IoT devices to your cloud infrastructure to, to endpoints and to servers. What's really hard is to look outside. The second thing that makes it hard is if an organization thinks that they have to come through a ton of data when they're talking about their infrastructure, imagine how much data you have to come through when you're trying to evaluate and divine truth from telemetry from what attackers are doing worldwide. And that's the part that's really much, much harder. So when we're looking at how we're going to address and solve these problems, it seems to me that there's two pieces of the equation. There's the prioritization piece that we talked about and then this this remediation piece. What do you see happening in the marketplace on the remediation side of the problem? Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to have watched this over the last few years. You know, there's a, there's a big irony in vulnerability prioritization. And the irony is that security finds 100% of the vulnerabilities, whether they be misconfigurations, whether they be application vulnerabilities because of poor application code, or that they be system-related vulnerabilities because of unpatched systems. The irony is we in the security world find it, but we own probably less than 10% of the remediation path. So think about this for a minute. So let's say you, George Redis, run a security team that runs all the vuln teams. So you run all the scanners, you do penetration testing, you leverage third parties to do pen testing. Hell, you may even use bug bounty programs from people like Synac, HackerOne, or BugCrowd. You aggregate all that data. Then you go through it, you gotta figure out what to prioritize. Let's assume for a minute, you have a great process methodology and platform and tool set to actually prioritize. Then you gotta go look through the remediation paths. And more often than not, the only thing in your toolbox is either reconfiguration, reconfiguration of, an end, of an agent endpoint or putting some kind of filter in the network. You don't write application code. You got to use the application developers. You don't, recon, you don't reconfigure stack. The DevOps people do. And you certainly don't uh, upgrade systems. The IT operations do. People do. And so what's really been fascinating to watch is how remediation is driven by non-security professionals, but the actual detection of vulnerabilities is driven by security professionals. That's why prioritization through the lens of risk is becoming so critical. Because you can no longer come down the hall to me and tell me, look, Kareem, you have about 750,000 vulnerabilities across your Linux stack. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the table on you and tell you, look, I have a ton of pressure from my business to launch the next $100 million application. Or I have issues to address from an availability perspective. So unless you can tell me what are the 500 vulnerabilities across a very finite number of systems I should tackle today, I'm largely going to ignore that request. And that's, that's sort of that, that teaming and collaboration aspect from a remediation perspective, which is cross-functional, is one of the things that's really starting to take hold inside of organizations today. So I like the fact that we're talking about the teaming aspect of this, and I'm really big into the organizational construct and how these teams interact with each other. Right, moving from models from just cooperation to collaboration to pure integration, so to speak, and this transformational changes that need to take place in these organizations. And I think about this, are we only talking about operations people at this point? I mean, it sounds like every operational group is impacted by the remediation factor of the equation, no? 
Yeah, they, they, they are. And, and it's multifaceted. So first, it's multiple operational groups. So, of course, security operations, then IT operations, because they own all of systems. DevOps, because as we talked about, I think, at the outset of the show, um, as organizations move into the cloud, they're using things like Chef, Puppet, and Ansible. And the people managing that infrastructure, and even uh, we haven't even started to talk about containerization, but the people that are managing those those things and the services in the cloud are a completely different beast, right? They're DevOps. They're sort of half developers, half IT operations persons. And what they want to do is they want to script the changes in a unified place or codify the changes in a unified place. Then you also have the layer of the application developer. So these are the people that have to go back and understand where in the source code their vulnerability is written that's exposing, let's say, uh, you know, a cross-site script or a, C, uh, 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 an SQI or SQL injection uh, vulnerability. And those people have to go back and look at code attribution tied to the actual developer. And the interesting thing about that, because now you're dealing with multiple operations groups, is that they all have sort of their, their different languages, their different tool sets, and the different stacks with which they work with. So you have a unified security organization that's finding the problems, but then they're beholden and reliant on these different operational groups to really work with them and integrate into their processes and workflows to ensure that they're helping them not only prioritize, but more importantly, strategize about what the most effective way is for remediation. So like organizations, I think they're always thinking about costs, right? There's a, the discussion all the time about budgets and costs and return on security investment is a constant. You know, running it like a business. And, and that's, we constantly talk about that throughout the industry, you know, running cybersecurity as a business. So I think there's a lot of organizations out there that they've put these Rossies together and their executive committees and boards want to see what they're getting, what they're paying for. They want to see what they're getting for their money and see if they're getting the biggest bang for the buck. So and that's why I think we're talking about process reengineering. We're talking about automation. We're talking about robotics inside of cybersecurity. And it's becoming more and more prevalent in the cybersecurity space every day. So, you know, after all, I mean, I, I think the bad guys automate their efforts every chance they get, and they play the numbers game, especially when launching cyber attacks via social media or um, uh, social uh, uh, platforms and, 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 and engineering attacks, social engineering attacks and tactics and things like that. So given today's security technology stack, how far away are we from automating the vulnerability uh, uh, remediation aspect of this? Well, that really depends on a number of things. I think, first of all, it depends on how forward-leaning the organization is. And there, there are some organizations from a security perspective that we work with that, are, that have jumped in with both feet. And what's allowed them to do that uniformly is that they've gone back and really understood the criticality of assets that those vulnerabilities are sitting on. And I want to it, it, that is probably one of the most important points here because a vulnerability in isolation really doesn't tell you enough. You have to understand the vulnerability on a system, and then you have to understand many attributes of that system. You have to understand the location of the system. Is it a vulnerability on a system buried deep inside a lab, or is it a vulnerability in the DMZ? Then you have to understand the criticality of that asset to the system. You apply models like CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability as a construct to rank the business value and the criticality of the asset. Once you've done that, what we're starting to see 
is the people are beginning to automate remediation, which in this case is automation of patching of those systems. For systems that have a, uh, the capability of understanding them in such a way that they're not the most critical assets of the system. What does that really mean? It means that if I'm a bank and I want to patch a vulnerability on a system in my infrastructure, I can likely automate that unless that that system is the system that's doing all of my transactions with my consumers. Because of course, that becomes much more critical and I have to run it through a bunch of rigor. Now, there's one other thing we have to think of too from an automation perspective, an area that we've started to work with customers and other vendors in, which is there's alternate remediation paths. So for example, if you have a application vulnerability inside of application source code, go down to the developer, even let's say you help them understand the attribution of their code and understand where in the source code that that vulnerability was, was written so that they can rewrite it out of it. The truth of the matter is they're not going to drop everything they're doing. So with things like web application firewalls and other things, you have the ability to automatically create Yara rules or WAF rules and push them into the firewall as a temporary remediation effort until you get the right level of resource to allocate to that given all the other contentious priorities that are within the organization. So the automation we see is twofold. We see it for systems that are not the most critical systems where people can go through and actually drive automated patching. And then we see it in what I would call is alternative remediation paths with inline devices and things that can sort of hold the dam until you get the right resource to actually fix it. And that's the biggest area we're seeing automation come into play today. So let's talk about scanning for a second. Scanning's been around for almost two decades now, and it sounds like much of the work in the industry, like we just talked about, is around the interpretation and prioritization and remediation of vulnerabilities and threats. So is, is the vulnerability scanning market itself stagnant, or are you seeing that change as well? Well, you know, the, the scanning market has been around for a while now. You know, you're right. I think if, uh, if we go back, it's, you know, the scanning world has been around probably since, if memory serves me correctly, late 90s or early 2000s. Uh, so, so, you know, going on 20 years now. And we are starting to see, and look, everybody that's paying attention to the security news cycle is starting to see that evolve significantly. Uh, you know, I'll just hold up Tanium and CrowdStrike as an example. Tanium, not too long ago, launched a, uh, a, I think they call it a comply module. CrowdStrike launched something somewhat similar um, where they're actually using the endpoint agent real estate that they have on both endpoints and servers to effectively infer the vulnerabilities that are running on those systems without ever invoking a scan. And so if you peel that back, you begin to understand how they're doing it. There's a sort of an, an interesting path. If, you, if you're a system, and I was able to query you in real time today, George, and you told me every single software and what version of the software that you were running full stack, I can then convert that into a, a, a CPE, which is a common platform enumeration tied to a software library. From there, I can map the CPE to a CVE or common vulnerability. That allows you to do several things, right? Go back to any big enterprise that has hundreds of thousands or millions of assets. One of the biggest things they'll gripe about relative to vulnerabilities is if something like Petya comes along, unless they've scanned very recently, they got to figure out how to go scan hundreds of thousands of systems to see where Petya is relevant. 
But if you have the capability to understand in real time or near real time what software inventory you have, and today they can be through endpoint agent technology, but in the future, if you have a database that has all your software inventory, you can query that and get the vulnerability with the same efficacy without ever having to invoke a scan. So there is, there, we're, we're at a very, very interesting space in the vulnerability world, and I think what's happening is you're seeing that both from the vulnerability vendors reacting to the market. Uh, not too long ago, uh, Qualys launched the Qualys agent to counteract that, but then you're also seeing sort of new entrants devise new inference mechanisms with which to understand vulnerabilities and really enable you to scale beyond that. Now, it is important that there's no silver bullet and there's no one size fits all here. So if, if you were to use something like CrowdStrike or Tanium, the reality is you're not installed CrowdStrike or Tanium on a network device or an IoT device. So we very much see that it's going to be a hybrid environment that will require you to normalize all of that data across your infrastructure. So there is no uh, silver bullet, right? So considering that, how are we going to get ahead of the adversary here in the future? I mean, what do we need to do? Even if you prioritize and use risk as a way to understand the prioritization piece of this that we just talked about, is there more that companies can do to increase their defense and death security posture? Yeah, you, you know, as it relates to vulnerabilities, we, we have a very, very, very specific viewpoint here in that, you know, if you think of the continuum of what happened in the world of vulnerabilities, back in the day, you looked at historical data as a precursor. Today, with technologies like Keno, we're looking at near real-time information about what attackers are doing and trying to inform people as quickly as possible based on outside looking in attacks and then help them use that as the prioritization engine and logic. Our view is that the industry is moving in the world of prediction. What does that really mean? So I go back to the Equifax example that we talked about earlier. So, you know, when we gathered all the data about Equifax, we went back and did a postmortem and looked at it. What did we find out? The vulnerability was announced on March 9th. We saw at the time two very interesting data points. A, from the outside looking in. A, that vulnerability had not yet been weaponized, meaning that it was not available inside a toolkit. So if you were an attacker and you were trying to exploit that Apache Struts vulnerability, you had to go and actually apply and build your own attack profile, which is for the most sophisticated attackers, certainly not automated or kitty scripts or, or malware. Secondly, we saw almost very little to zero attacks of that vulnerability when it first came out in the wild. Yet about 10 days, after it was announced, there was a, a couple of exploit kits that weaponized that vulnerability. And very shortly after, if memory serves me correctly, about eight days later, we started to see a huge rise of volume of, the vo of those vulnerabilities being exploited in the wild. And so upon that, we started to do a lot of research and a lot of work around how do we use that model as a forward-looking or predictive indicator. So we recently announced the ability to predict vulnerability exploitation the day they're actually published and released with NVD through NIST. And the reason we believe that's so important is because we've effectively started to build an early warning system to vulnerabilities. It's not the only lens with which you look to prioritize, but it will be an extremely important one moving forward because all or operational teams have either responded from the bottoms up when they hear about other security groups dealing with a new vulnerability that was published or are having to respond from the top down at the board level 
when something like Equifax hits and everybody wants to know not only what's their exposure, but what's the likelihood that they're going to get breached. So the good news is using cloud as a computing construct, because it does require a lot of compute, plus the latest sort of true, I would say, machine learning, artificial intelligence type capabilities, we're starting to see that the industry can build an early warning system to help organizations start to get ahead of this game. Because one thing that's for certain, when you're an average company that has 18 to 24 million vulnerabilities, you're never going to run around and be able to close all of them simultaneously. So Kareem, it was a pleasure having you on, brother. We're out of time for today. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you come back again soon. You got it. Thanks for the time, George. So we've run out of time, folks, but before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 